Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. know how life will challenge us or how those challenges will shape our path. Our next guest, Congresswoman Kathy McMorris Rogers, is a terrific example of taking what life throws at you, including doors that open for you, and making the most of them, even in spite of some fear and trepidation. Kathy has a significant track record of policy accomplishments and much of her career in the U.S. House of Representatives, she has spent leading the Republican Conference as vice chair and later chair. She was elected to the U.S. House in 2004, but her public service career actually started when she was just 24. But it was difficult news that Kathy received some 12 years ago that clarified her focus helped her see the world differently, and renewed her commitment to serving others. She boldly crosses the political aisle to engage those who have a different political point of view, and her desire to build understanding has never been more valuable nor more important. I think you'll love how Kathy talks about this aspect of her service and the ways that she is working to have a positive impact on the world. You don't need to be a Republican to appreciate the tremendous value that Kathy brings to her role. My friend, Kathy McMorris Rogers, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much, Laura. It is great to be with you. Well, Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here with you and so happy that you could make the time to join us today. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're doing this. She said, she said. <laughs> a lot of when I started to say that, I was like, am I missing? <laughs> no, you no, got it. <laughs> I have the mug too. Yes, exactly. Love it. <laughs> so let's talk about how you got your start. How did you become interested in political service? I got interested in, in political service right out of college, working on a family friend's campaign. He was, uh, he was part pastor, part farmer. Then he was running for the state house, and he asked if I would come manage his campaign. That was back in 1990. The idea of me ever running for office, let alone running for Congress, was not what I would have imagined at that time. This has been an unexpected yet a very fulfilling and exciting journey that I have had. And I, and I go back to Bob Morton, who was that, our, our friend and then my boss as state representative. He won that race in 1990, and he offered me a job. And then three years later, our state senator retired midterm. My boss was appointed to fill the seat, and he encouraged me to seek the appointment to fill the seat in the state house. That was a big decision for me. Uh, as I look back on it, Bob saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And he was always encouraging me to, to get out and represent him and give speeches. And little did I know that I would be uh, appointed as state representative. I won that by one vote of the county commissioners. And I headed off to Olympia to be the best 
state representative that I could be. Ten years later, I had uh, just been elected the minority leader in the state house, the first woman to lead either caucus, when George Nethercutt announced that he was running for the U.S. Senate. He was my congressman. It meant there was an open seat for the, the House. And he, he called me one day and asked if I had ever considered running for Congress. My name had been mentioned because, you know, as people were speculating, you, they had the House Minority Leader. And I was thinking, no, I just got elected Minority Leader. I had, I had plans for the State House and the work that I was going to do there. But after uh, taking some time to explore a potential run for Congress, I ultimately made the decision to do it. I ran, I won, and have had the honor of serving since 2004. You started at a very young age. How old were you when you had your first, were you first held elected office? I was 24. That's really young to get your start. Mm -hmm. Was that intimidating for you? Did you suffer from something we talk about on the podcast a lot, this notion (laughs) of imposter syndrome? How did I get Mm -hmm. here? Am I really qualified? Those kinds of questions that we sometimes ask ourselves. Uh, sure, I had I had a lot of those I had a lot of those questions. My family had had owned an orchard and fruit stand, and I had grown up working alongside my my brother and my parents. We raised cherries, peaches, apricots, sold everything at the fruit stand. Our family was well known in that that area. Uh, when I was appointed to serve as state representative, I recognized that it was a great opportunity. But I also did. I had a lot of those questions. But there was something ultimately where I decided I didn't want to one day look back and say, oh, I was too afraid to step forward. That compelled me to go for it. And I'm, and I'm just I'm grateful for those who encouraged me to go for it in, in, in that moment. Because having other people believe in me made a big difference. But certainly through the years, there there were many times when I might just take a step back and ask myself, how did this happen? And and have some self-doubt. And but that also has has spurred me along where I've always wanted to do better and to continue to prove myself and to uh, represent my district because what has inspired me from the very beginning has been the people that I get to meet. And it just, it has always been the case that when I, when I get around Eastern Washington and get out and meet people that are doing their part, whether it's teachers uh, that are every day working with our kids or the small businessmen who had this idea for a new product. We have a guy in Spokane who invented the bee trap, that yellow plastic bee trap that you, you buy for 10 bucks at Home Depot, right? He started in his kitchen, and now he sells that worldwide. Or other people who have ideas, the nonprofits that are meeting needs in our communities. I'm, I'm just always inspired by these people, and that in America, you can take these ideas and do something with it. Or, or people that are seeing other needs in our community, and figuring out how to help their neighbors, help families that are in need. And that inspires me, and it makes me want to work harder and, and help them 
uh, in any way that I can. As you think about this notion of self-doubt and how you've dealt with it, in addition to these great inspiring examples, the people who inspire you to keep moving forward, do you have any practices or sort of tools in your toolkit that help you get over those moments of self-doubt. Mm. We all have them, yes. right? But what are your what are your ways of continuing to put one foot in front of the other and keep going? Well, I have these these questions that sometimes I'll ask myself and ask my team about how are we showing up? You know, how are we how are we showing up for each day, each meeting and it's are you happy or sad? Are you expressive or bottled up are you active or passive and those sometimes it's good to remind me of those questions how am i showing up Um, but just just a a quick story too in 2014 john boehner asked if i would give the response to the president's state of the union i was 35 and single when i was elected to congress and then, then got married, had three kids, and I had just given birth to our third, uh, little Bren, in November of 2013, right at the end of November. And the speaker, John Boehner, called me uh, towards the end of December. It's unusual to have the speaker call, and I was I wasn't expecting him to say what he did when he called. He, he said that Mitch McConnell and he had been talking and that they would like me to give the response to the president's State of the Union. And in that moment, I remember I told him, uh, well, if you think so, I'll do my best. <laughs> and Speaker John Boehner, he responded, he said, he said, Kathy, don't overthink it. And then he said, just be yourself. And for all those years, you know, that I had thought I needed to be just a little bit different, that I either needed to dress different or speak different or present different, uh, all those years that I had been my own worst critic and had been hard on myself at different times, to have the speaker in this, in this moment say, just be yourself. It it was for me. It was uh, it was a significant moment in my life where I was able just to say, just to kind of let go of some of all that and say, okay, Kathy, you do have something unique and valuable to offer by just being yourself. There's so much in that story. One piece of it is the incredible power that a that a role model can have in your life, someone who you respect, who says to you, no, no, you can Mm -hmm. do it. You just be you and do what I know you can do. You know you can do it too. That is incredibly powerful. There are a number of other themes that you touched on in that story that are, for many of us, they're all, they, they sort of, Uh, are part of those all-too-female traits, the way in which we respond to challenges sometimes, Mm -hmm. to second-guess ourselves, to, in in the speaker's, former speaker's Mm -hmm. words, to overthink, Mm -hmm. right? So much there. But the power of his mentorship to you is really, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And it it is true that, uh, as I have talked to women through the years about running for office, they're the first to tell me why they're not the one. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was just talking to a lady the other day 
uh, about running. She is well connected in the community. She and her husband are in business. They are involved in a lot of nonprofits. They do a ton. And I, and I said, you need to run for Congress. And she looked at me and she said, Kathy, I'm too shy. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> if I can do it, you can do it. And then I, I reached out to another uh, lady who is working on her doctorate. And she's a teacher. She's working on her doctorate. She's going to finish it just later on in June. Uh, I said, you need to think about running for Congress. And she said, oh, I'm not smart enough. And I'm, I'm just, you know, the, the expectations that we put on ourselves are, are really unrealistic for many of us. Now, as, as more women are running for office and are, are serving in Congress, it is encouraging to see others stepping up. And I do believe that those, those models are really important. And through the years, I have looked to other women in particular, and I and I would see see someone, and I would say, okay, if she did it, then I can do it. And maybe I didn't completely understand how she did it, but I was thinking, okay, I can figure it out. Yeah. So you spend a good amount of your time helping to recruit women to encourage them to jump in to throw their hat into the ring. What is your secret sauce for getting them to say yes? <laughs> it's well, a challenge. A lot of them. <laughs> well, I'm encouraged that more are running. And I, and I believe that the secret sauce probably is just them being able to talk to someone who is a mom who has three young kids who travels from Washington, D.C. to Washington State and somehow figures out how to do it. And I do believe that that has been compelling to a, no- a number of women who, after talking to me, have said, okay, maybe I don't have it completely figured out, but I'm willing to do it. I do find that those conversations are so different between the men and the women. Mm-hmm. And when you're reaching out to a man about running for office, you know, quite often they're just ready to, you know, sign me up. Yeah, that's going to be great. Whereas the woman, she's she does look at it more like her plate and it's all full. And she's thinking about her family, her career, her involvement in the community. And she just isn't quite sure how running for office fits into that. Now, I am encouraged that more are running. And we have we have a record number of Republican women that are running, uh, heading into 20 and 20. I've never seen it. So when, when I was elected to Congress in 2004, I was the 200th woman ever elected to serve in the United States House of Representatives. Wow, that's amazing. Out of uh, uh, about 11,000 who have served in the House. Wow. Which I share because it is still relatively new. You know, this year we'll celebrate the 100th anniversary of the women's right to vote. So there were a lot of a lot of years in this country when women weren't even voting, let alone running and serving in Congress. And then it was many years before anyone was elected to Congress and it's still when you look at the history it's taken us a while to get to where we are. Now, now we have more women running, and, and that is, it's really exciting. And I am, uh, I am encouraged and impressed with the women that are stepping up to run, that, that recognize that the decisions made here in Congress are impacting them, 
that their voices need to be heard, that they have something of value to add to this debate, to this conversation, and they're getting involved. I've had this theory, I'm curious as to what you think about this, that having more women in positions of power, generally speaking, even if they're women that are that do not share one's political views necessarily, but just the fact that they're there sets an example for others to, to say, you know, even though I'm not from her party, if she can do it, I can do it, and I have a different point of view that I want to make sure that view is heard. What do you think about that notion of having women in these roles, even if you don't agree with them, actually are important role models? Absolutely. I completely agree. It changes the dynamics when you have more women serving in the House, serving in Congress, and and it also underscores that women are not going to agree on every issue also. National security issues and economic issues and all of the issues around health care and education, we're going to have different opinions, but it is important that a woman's perspective and uh, a woman's voice is a part of making those decisions. And we'll make, we'll make better decisions when women are at the table, when women are involved in making those decisions. It just makes sense. Because these, the decisions that are made are impacting everybody. Yeah. When you were in your role as conference chair, you had some interesting ideas about marketing the power of women a bit differently to women's magazines, to really encouraging them and being perhaps a little more open than, uh, than some members had been in the past to say, come in and talk to us, meet these amazing women that we have on the Republican side so that you understand that different point of view. Um, talk a bit about where that idea came from and kind of how that how that culminated. As chair of the Republican Conference, you are charged with communication. You're the point person with communication as well as helping the members be successful as much as you can. You're you're almost an extension of their office. When I was elected chair, my goal was to take our message to every corner of the country and to engage. Uh, different demographic groups. I, I want women, minorities, the next generation, millennials, I want them to understand Republican policies and our, our hopes and dreams for every person, no matter where you come from, no matter your background. So when I was elected as chair of the conference, that was my goal. My goal was to really reach out, reach out and engage the non-traditional Republicans. So we did we did a series of meetups where we were reaching out to minority groups with the Korean Americans and the Vietnamese Americans, the Indian Americans, and, and we did a lot of work there. With the women, we targeted the women magazines because it was important for women across the country to see Republican women also in these roles and in and serving in Congress and hear their stories. And as I started reaching out to the editors of the women magazines, whether it was Elle or Women's Day or Marie Claire, they were very interested in meeting the Republican women. But there was almost a skepticism that I could see on their faces when they walked through the door. And I enjoyed introducing them to the Republican women that were serving in the House of Representatives. And every single one of these editors was so impressed when they got to hear the stories of 
Martha McSally as the the first female fighter pilot, or uh, Diane Black's story of you know overcoming a very difficult childhood and then um, becoming a nurse and then a businesswoman, very successful businesswoman, or Christy Nome, who's now the governor of South Dakota, and her story being raised on the farm and and quitting college when her dad passed away. Uh, so that she could help save the farm. You, you just story after story that is moving and is powerful. And they and, and it's not just their own stories, but then the passion that they bring as an elected representative and how that influences their work. We saw a, a number of stories that were written just by reaching out and introducing the women. And so Part of uh, the challenge was just to get make sure that people were aware. We had 21 members that were under 40 when I was chair, more than the Democrats. Yeah. Many, when they think of Republicans, they think of us being the older party, and yet we had all of these young, dynamic, next-generation leaders. And so my goal was to highlight more of those members and to get them out front so that people could meet them, but also engage with people across the country because the the battle of ideas is is one that we need to be engaging with everyone and that was uh how i wanted to approach being chair of the conference and to share stories because stories are so so powerful and it's it's the personal stories but also the stories around the legislation that we're working on and and how it informs the policy solutions yeah i mean it was a a brave thing to do to because women's magazines historically had been kind of you know, had sort of put anything that was Republican at, at a bit of an arm's length. I saw comments by Anna Wintour, who's the mm. editor-in-chief at Vogue, mm. that were extremely controversial. They didn't get quite as much coverage as, frankly, they should have. I think it had, there was a, a partisan component to it. But it's disturbing that it has, historically, that space has been very myopic as it relates to the way in which the editors of these magazines think about women leaders. Yes. That you have to adhere to a particular political point of view. So it's to your credit that you said, no, no, (laughs) come in, come talk to us. Let me introduce you to some of these women who have a different perspective and a different view of what leadership means. It underscores the importance of showing up of building the relationships, of reaching out. And and we I it was successful. And any of us that have flipped through one of those women's magazines when we're getting our hair done or whatever it may be, usually, large, large majority of the time, if they're talking politics, it's it's one side. And it's important as Republicans that we are reaching out and engaging them and making them aware and you know, they responded positively. Let's talk about this notion of likability, which oftentimes comes up when women run for office. We're seeing a very interesting discussion. This is largely so because there are so there are so many women that are running for the Democratic nomination for president currently, but it's coming up a lot in media coverage and in discussions on whether they're likable enough. Do you think women are held to a different standard of this notion of likability than men are? Or maybe covered differently when you think about whether they're likable? It's still new to see women running, running for president. As you were asking me that question, I was thinking about the race with Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, Mm -hmm. when Mitt Romney was the one that 
people didn't relate to us or didn't feel like he re- related to them or that he really understood the the concerns of average people and uh, it's and that bre- whole can you can you go get a beer with somebody and there's a there's there's a lot that is involved in being a really good candidate and likability is one factor but you're going to find some women are more likable than others some are more relatable and so i think women and men both wrestle with these these challenges as far as being a candidate and how they present themselves and you're asking is is there is there a different standard for the women you know i think there's something in us as women that we critique ourselves mm-hmm. <laughs> we're very quick to do that with others too and we're always critiquing okay so how is she doing all of this tougher on other women perhaps maybe (laughs) that i think we are yeah i do too and i think that's part of what is impacting this race for president and some of the women that are running for president too we're tougher on them women are yeah i almost feel like women are expected to do it all and to do it all well when when nobody can reach that we, uh, fulfill that expectation. Yeah, and be dressed perfectly and have the perfect shoes on and, yes. <laughs> and not yes. break a sweat yes. and yes. have the hair yes. and all of it. Yeah. So this Congress, you walked away from a, a leadership post that you had held for a number of years. Why was taking on new priorities important for you this year? It was a combination of, of factors. I had served as chair of the Republican Conference for six years enjoyed it very much. I I was I was excited about taking on a new role in Congress and I am a senior member on the Energy and Commerce Committee. I am the ranking Republican on a subcommittee that has jurisdiction over some of the issues that are at the heart of the 21st century economy, privacy, data breach, the internet of things, driverless vehicles. Uh, there's a lot of really fun issues in this subcommittee. And I was, I was excited to, to focus more on policy, focus on charting that, that course for the Republicans as it relates to policy solutions. We, it is important in legislating that you're always thinking about the, the vision and uh, the agenda that is going to lead to this vision that you have. And, and so as you think about the 21st century economy, I'm I'm right there to help chart that course for the Republicans, and it's it's uh, fun to be able to focus on policy now. So you were the first person, as we talked about in the intro, to give birth in office three separate times, and you got started a lot like me late. Uh, you were in your 30s when you started having children, um, and for many women, myself included, that can pose some significant challenges. Biology is is what it is. Um, it does matter. What is your advice for young women who ask you about starting a family and challenges associated with having children later in life? Mm-hmm. I am so grateful to be a mom. And as I mentioned, I was 35 and single when I was elected to Congress. And I had a very full life, and it was, uh, there was excitement and challenge uh, and a lot of uh, fulfillment that I found in what I was doing. Becoming a mom has been the, the best part, but also the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life, too. And I feel like I came very close to missing out on being a mom. I had, I had 
I had thought, well, maybe it's not going to happen, and I was fine. But now that I am a mom, I just I just love that part of my life, and it opens up this whole other aspect and passion that it brings for every day and the work that I am doing. There's really this sense that we we stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us, and the work that we're doing today is for our children and our grandchildren. And so I encourage women that, you know, I'd like to encourage women that you don't have to, you know, that you can have a career and you can be a mom. It's it's not always easy. Not every day goes as you you imagine or hope, but there's a lot of fulfillment that comes in in doing both of those. Having having a partner, having a husband who's so supportive has made a big difference in my life. And and being able to walk this journey with him has has been the best. Yeah. Your you have talked and spoken very openly about your son Cole, who is your firstborn. And you found out that he had Down syndrome when he was still in utero. And you've talked very openly about your experience. What was your reaction to getting that news? It was, it was tough news. You're, you're so excited to get pregnant and all that that means. Getting married later in life, you're not sure what that journey is going to look like. So there's there's so much excitement and you don't ever imagine or or dream that you're going to be the one that has a child with special needs. That isn't that just isn't what you dream. And and to a certain degree you always think that that's someone else. So when we got the diagnosis it was it was it was really tough. And there were um, yeah, there were tears. It's a it's and to a certain degree it's a death of a dream. And yet today, so Cole just turned 12 years old, and I am so grateful for Cole. And I think part of, I think part of what makes it so difficult when you get the diagnosis, it is, it's the fear of the unknown. And when you get a diagnosis like that, um, those that are walking you through the diagnosis and what it means and the challenges that your, your precious child is going to face, so much of the focus is on the negative side. Now, if any parent upon the birth of their child was given this long list of possibilities as to, you know, getting cancer or juvenile leukemia or whatever it may be, it, it would be overwhelming. It was the fear of the unknown and then also this list of things that possibly could go wrong, just kind of the, the percentage that this, you know, the, the hearing issues or other health issues. Anyway, Cole has exceeded every expectation. And he has, I've learned not to put any limits on Cole. And he also has renewed my conviction as to why I'm here. And it is, it's the potential that every person has and the value that every person has. And that that is what America is all about, is making sure that every person has the opportunity to to reach their full potential, and so Cole Cole uh, reminds me of that every day. I am I am I am grateful today to be a part of the disabilities community. It's a community that welcomed me and uh, just wrapped their arms around me when Cole was born, and and it's a community of people who celebrate what every person 
has to offer and they celebrate every success every milestone and i just love that that they they really celebrate the the positive side of life and uh, unlike the rest of the world that oftentimes focuses on the limitation uh, this is a community that focuses on what someone can do and what they are doing and we could all learn from that you know we were talking earlier about women being our own worst critic we all should all do more to focus on what we're doing to make a difference in uh, other people's lives Last year, a Washington Post opinion writer, Ruth Marcus, wrote a piece in which she said, specifically relating to, I think, your, that, to your son, Cole, that she would have had an abortion rather than give birth to a child with Down syndrome. And you responded to her very forcefully. Talk about your reaction. Right. Yeah, she said she would have grieved for a couple of days and moved on. The reason that I responded the way that I did, I, I, think it's, it, I think it's very important that we as a society cherish life. And even though it may be different, even though it may be hard, there is value. And, and not just value, it is, Cole has had such a positive impact on our family. And you talk to anyone in the disabilities community, they are so passionate about their family member who may have a disability because they know the, the value, they see it every day and it makes them the most, they make, it makes them uh, very defensive <laughs> and very articulate in why that person means so much to them. And so as a, as a country who has always cherished I mean, it's, it's fundamental to us that we cherish the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all. I believe that that means even our most vulnerable and even those that may have special needs, that we, they have so much to offer. They, they want to be seen for their ability. They want to be seen for what they can contribute. And uh, I want to I wanna do everything I can to help them. And, and in the years that I've been in Congress now, I've been able to work on legislation that is going to allow them to live more independently. The ABLE Act allows them to save tax-free. It allows, now we, just last Congress, I introduced ABLE to Work, which will allow individ, individuals with disabilities to go get a part-time job or an internship, take that money and put it into their ABLE account uh, without it counting against their benefits. And that is uh, giving them the opportunity to go out and work and be self-sufficient. And, and that is, that's where we should be focusing. We should be focusing on every person reaching their full potential. Yeah. You are the mother of two other young children as well. Cole has two younger siblings. What is your advice for families when you have a child who has special needs? What's your advice for balancing the, the, the family's other need? Mm-hmm. Does that well, make sense? our household is chaotic, probably like any household that has three <laughs> kids. Uh, yes, Grace and Brynn would want to make sure that I mention their names. They do note that Cole seems to get more airtime. He does get a lot than, of airtime. <laughs> than uh, they do as the girls. Uh, so, yes, uh, I have two other girls. And I think it's like any family. You know, it's... Uh, 
it it's amazing to me how each one of our kids is so different and and in a positive way and you love each one and you are and you're and you're just doing everything you can to meet their needs and help them grow and develop and be the best that they can be. Kathy, your other two children are girls. Cole has two younger sisters. As we think about raising our daughters, what are some of the most important lessons that you're hoping to impart upon them? Hmm. The most important thing I want them to know is that they are yeah, that they are loved, but I want them to have I want them to have confidence in who they are and that they have something unique to offer and not to get so caught up in trying to be like someone else, but to embrace who they are and embrace their their strengths, their likes. Uh, Grace is a tomboy. She loves sports. She she she's Cole's chief competitor, and uh, and she loves Legos and. She always wants to tear things apart and understand why they work. And then I have Bryn, who's this princess who loves to have her hair done and wear dresses and and dress up and get in my high heels and walk down the stairs. You know, they're they're so different, and I want them to be I want them to be confident in who they are, embrace who they are, and then just have a life that is full of love and happiness. This is a a tough environment that you're operating in today, arguably perhaps tougher now than it was when you started in politics. Women can have a tendency to really internalize criticism and sometimes over-internalize feedback. Mm -hmm. Because you're in public service and you're a public role model, some of that just comes with the territory. But how do you how do you know the difference between criticism and feedback? And how do you keep from letting it drag you down? Mm-hmm. The bullies, the meanies, the mm-hmm. trolls, you know, <laughs> call them whatever you will. They're out there. They're in full force. They have lots of platforms to uh, express themselves on. How do you deal with that? You just have to dig deep. And at the end of the day, you know who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. You want the the constructive criticism and feedback, but I think it is true that sometimes we dwell too much on that. I have to remind myself that on any given day, I am doing my best. I am giving it my all. And some days go better than others and not to be too critical on myself. There's, There's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of people who are attempting to tear you down. So it is being intentional and being really having having some goals and knowing what you want to accomplish and really focusing on how you want how not just what you're doing but how you're doing it. One thing that we've done in my office that I think has really made a difference is that we have we we live our values. We have values in my office around having fun while we serve. And serve is seek excellence Everybody matters, responsibly own it, vigilant integrity, and embrace change. And uh, in the years that I've been in Congress, as 
uh, when we when when we implemented these values, this has probably been four or five years ago now, and really became more intentional in living the values. It has it has been a foundation that has seen us through the good times and the tougher times. And for me personally, it is it's it's a foundation for how I approach every day. This is how I want to approach every meeting, every phone call, uh, every opportunity that I've I'm given is this is this is the way that I'm going to do it. It's guided me and it's guided my team. And yes, there's going to be people out there that are critical for one reason or another or are beyond being critical. Yeah, that are wanting to tear you down. I have stopped listening to some of that and make sure that my focus and my energy is on uh, what I want to be doing that is proactive and intentional. Yeah. Because the environment is so polarized, are there still opportunities to work across the aisle and reach consensus in a bipartisan fashion? Sure. Over the last two and a half years, I have I've had more legislation pass than ever. I have had I had ten bills pass the House last Congress. Seven were signed into law, all bipartisan. In Eastern Washington, I have been hosting unity dinners. Unity not meaning uniformity, but unity meaning let's get together for dinner, let's put our phones away, and let's. Let's share stories. And these are dinners with people from the other side of the aisle. Oh, yeah. Uh, diverse people in eastern Washington coming together for dinner. And some went better than others. But it has been, it's been powerful for me to see the impact of bringing six to eight people together for dinner that yeah, are very diverse politically, share their stories, gain understanding, talk about our community, and sometimes I could help from the congressional office. Sometimes they might meet someone else at the dinner. We did a reunion of the Unity Dinners mm. after the, the first year. And I was amazed with the people who came back. You know, the lady who, who showed up at the first Unity Dinner and she said, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't agree with any of your votes. <laughs> You're kind of like, okay, yeah. Um, but she came. But she came. <laughs> And she was tough that night, but it was powerful for me when she came back. She came back to the reunion dinner, and she said, you know, I'm not spending as much time on social media, and I've started writing notes of encouragement on Fridays, just three to five notes. I want to do more to be an encourager and to be positive. And the stories that were shared at the reunion dinner, that's when I thought, okay, this is a powerful reminder that it's about relationships. It's about taking the time to hear each other's stories and gaining understanding. The shortest distance between two people is their story. And we spend so much time on our phones. We spend so much time on electronics and social media. We need to all be more intentional to build the relationships. I've also been co-chairing with the president of the NAACP in Spokane, a peaceful community roundtable, which again has been very much a positive. We had some racist graffiti at the Martin Luther King Jr. Outreach Center. And I reached out to the center director and I also reached out to the NAACP, Phil Tyler. I didn't know Phil at the time, 
I asked him what I could do, and he said, would you be willing to do a roundtable? We decided to do it on Martin Luther King Day. That morning, I go to the rally in Spokane, 3,000 people at this rally. I get up to speak, and I get booed and hissed. They started chanting, liar, liar, and I'm like, okay. Not, didn't go the best, right? That's at the MLK rally that morning. In the afternoon, we're doing this first roundtable. I didn't know it was going to be the first of many, but anyway, our, this roundtable. And I didn't, I didn't know what I was walking into. Very diverse people from the community, African-American leaders, faith leaders, law enforcement, education, the mayor, the sheriff. After two hours, and we were all over the map, and I wondered, where is this going? After two hours, we agreed on three goals for our community. Moving from poverty to opportunity, moving from racism to gracism, viewing everyone with dignity and value, and moving from divisiveness to security. Because as we become so divided, and you put labels on people, then it's easy, it leads to violence. And I walked away pretty amazed. Yeah. And we've kept on meeting. We've kept on have, bringing more people into this discussion around our community. And I'm reminded that it really makes a difference when you reach out. At that very first roundtable, Phil Tyler, at the end, he said, okay, pick someone in the room and go have a cup of coffee with them. And I picked, the guy I looked at was was uh, a pastor of one of our local African-American churches, but he didn't look very happy. He, didn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't giving me any vibes like he was opening up to me. <laughs> I thought, okay, I guess, it's, uh, I guess it's Pastor Walter. And we went and grabbed a cup of coffee. And I visited his church, and we have become friends. I, th- I think we all need to take that challenge. We need to go and reach out and and treat each other with dignity and respect and it needs to happen here on capitol hill we did a reunion we did a unity dinner here out at mount vernon Mm. last year where every republican was invited asked to bring a democrat and every democrat was challenged to bring a republican and we went out to mount vernon george washington showed up he was dressed up that night and he gave us all his his book on civility Uh But there's, there's a lot of members, a lot of people who recognize that we, 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 we must do better, that we have to treat each other with dignity and respect. And we're not going to be able to solve problems if we can't talk to each other. One final question. I ask everybody on the podcast to share either a single piece of advice a life hack, a mantra. It can mm-hmm. be something that you tell your kids, something that your mom told you. What is yours? Mm-hmm. One mantra is the best is yet to come. And those days that it may not go as you had hoped, just to remind yourself that the best is yet to come. Um, but I would, I would just encourage people, you know, as I look back on my life, that be a risk taker. Don't let fear hold you back because you, know, you can have a, a, an amazing impact and the world needs you, needs your impact. Yeah. Kathy, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks. Thanks. 
To learn more about Kathy, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There we will include photos from today's visit as well as links to Kathy's bio and some other great information. And as always, thanks so much for listening.